Hello and welcome to Try Talking Sport, hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast, or simply have an interest in sport, you've come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation, and a little bit of entertainment. I hope you're all doing well. I can't believe we are already into the final week of July. I know it's been a very peculiar few months, but it really feels like I've clicked my fingers and time has just moved forward faster than I ever expected. We heard last week that the Ironman 70.3 World Championships and the rescheduled Ironman World Championships have been cancelled outright for 2020, which is undoubtedly disappointing for everyone. In more positive news closer to home here in Ireland, it was great to see a return to triathlon racing last weekend, the first triathlon race of the 2020 season taking place on Saturday, and long may this racing continue. I've been popping out to the Galway Tri Club time trial races the last two weeks to get my fix of the finish line feeling, taking photographs and enjoying the banter and buzz of simply being there. Hopefully, it won't be long before I'm on an actual microphone encouraging and entertaining athletes as they make their way to their race finish. I've signed up to the Galway Bay Virtual Swim this year in support of Cancer Care West, giving myself a nice target for the month of August to swim the 13 kilometres of Galway Bay over the course of the month. It's amazing what some peer pressure will do. Thanks, Deirdre, Cara and Fiona. I've also agreed to complete the distance in togs. No wetsuits, no pressure. My replacement turbo arrived last week too, so I really have no excuses for not getting fitter and faster than before and also losing some of those COVID kgs that seem to be hanging on for way too long. And COVID kgs are a real thing. They are. Seriously. Now, this week's guest is no stranger to race finish lines, podiums, world records and so much more. Joe Barr, the world ultra endurance cyclist, took time out from his training to join me for a chat that could have gone on for hours. Joe, a former professional cyclist, has blazed a trail in ultra-endurance cycling in recent years. The 61-year-old rider continues to push boundaries in his sport, setting and breaking records, winning races outright and proudly cycling his way into the world history books. He recently broke his own record for the Malin to Mizzen to Malin route of 738 miles in 44 hours and 15 minutes, setting not one but three ultra-cycling world records in the process. He's been riding his bike for 45 plus years and has no plans to stop pedalling or slow down anytime soon. He is a 1986 Commonwealth Games medalist and has amassed hundreds of medals and trophies in different cycling disciplines throughout his career. In 2009, he entered his first endurance race, the race around Ireland. From that moment, Joe Barr became Team Joe Barr and he hasn't looked back since. 2017 was a milestone season with the team winning two World Cup 500 mile races in Italy and the United States, resulting in Joe being crowned the 2017 World Endurance Champion overall 500 mile category, a first for Ireland. In 2018, Joe returned to and won Race Around Ireland, covering 2,200 kilometres in 104 hours and three minutes with just three and a half hours sleep. He beat some of the world's toughest competitors in what is considered one of the most intense races on the world circuit. In 2019, Joe won his age category in Race Across America, the non-stop 3,070-mile race from the west coast of America to the east coast. It is considered the toughest race in endurance with less than 400 solo competitors in its 36-year history making it to the finish line. Joe is the only Irish rider to have finished Ram twice. I could have chatted with Joe for hours. We barely scratched the surface of his incredible career, but this is a hugely insightful interview with so many nuggets of inspiration. Even if you never cycled a bike, you are sure to get something from it. Enjoy the show. 
Joe Barr, welcome to Try Talking Sport. It's a pity we don't get to meet in person to do this interview um, because I reckon we'd have great crack if we sat down together and started talking about cycling in person. Yeah, well, I'm always open to come to the West. <laughs> you might cycle down one of the days on one of your long training sessions. Possibly. I've, I've done that quite a number of days then as far as Westport, to be honest, like, so it's a, it's a familiar route for me. So I could probably cycle to Westport and it'd take me four days to recover and you'd probably cycle home in the same time it'd take me to cycle from Galway to Westport. <laughs> I don't know if it's, I don't know, that's maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but like something like, it would be some version <laughs> of that, I'm sure. <laughs> Joe, I'm going to get straight into um, throwing some some questions at you. Lots of us know who you are from your epic endurance cycling adventures in the past number of years. Any of us who've been involved in endurance cycling or involved in cycling in any form will know the name Joe Barr is synonymous with achievements, with world records, with ultra cycling records, with podiums. But where did all of this start? Bring us right back to when Joe Barr started cycling for the very first time. Well, he started uh, way back in 1972, which is a very long time ago. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I grew up in I grew up in Donegal. I was, I was actually born in Dublin, and I grew up in Donegal. You know, my mum was from Donegal. My dad was from the city in Derry. They lived in a little village just close by the border. So I grew up there in the 70s, you know, obviously not a lot of cycling, like, you know, but there were some very simple things that, uh, for whatever reason, caught my attention in relation to, to cycling. And, and to be honest with you, it was as simple as colouring in pictures as you did back in the back of a cereal packet, like as a kid growing up, like, and there was, there, there was this series of cereal packets like that where, that had a, pictures of the Tour de France on the back, like, and I, 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 I just got infatuated with colour and, and whatever. And uh, I was very fortunate that my family bought me a, back then, and you won't remember this, or most of your listeners won't remember this, but I, got, I was bought a Rally Chopper, right, which is to this day pretty iconic bike. Like, I started cycling on a Rally Chopper. There was a period of time, uh, you know, everyone's aware of the troubles that were in Northern Ireland like at the height of the troubles my family moved to, into into Derry to live for a while like it was a bit of a culture shock like for, for all of you know, I, had, I had brothers and sisters and whatever and we didn't really understand that environment or whatever so on the weekends I used to ride the chopper from there to my grandmother's in Donegal and that started this process and it was at a fixed time every weekend or whatever but ironically every Friday riding from from Derry back out to my grandmother's in Donegal near Letterkenny actually um I used to meet a group of cyclists who were obviously going out training and they were coming from work and whatever. And I got sort of hooked in with that group of cyclists with, on the rally chopper doing the thing. <laughs> and, and, it, and it progressed and progressed and progressed until every Friday, you know, I got dropped at a certain point and then I got dropped a bit further on and so on and so forth until eventually I went the whole way with them. But I made the chronic mistake of going far too far. Then I ran out of food and then I couldn't get home. So it, the whole course, crash course of learning to ride the bike was like that. And I was very fortunate that one of those riders like just recognized that this kid was good. He could, he, he was worth looking at or whatever. And he, and he helped, he was one of the riders, Tommy Burns was his name. And, and he helped me at that start, at the start, you know, to, try and grasp it. I then went from a rally chopper to a race bike and all of a sudden I was on my first race and off I went. And by the time I was 18 years old, I was national champion and time trial. And, and so the progress of my career, you know, the trajectory of it, like was pretty rapid really. But you were back in an era that doesn't resemble what it is today. Like, I mean, it's 
well, relatively organized, you know, right now, like um, in mainstream racing in this country, it's very organized globally. But I was in a world like that was, you know, it was pretty basic stuff that we were, we were involved in that all local, you know, festival type races and whatever that was around the, the towns in Donegal and whatever. I went to the first open race in the late 70s. And I don't remember exactly the year, like, but it was that. But, but really, one of the things that came into play was really the, just the geographical location of where I was, where Northern Ireland was just an easier, accessible place to go to race than Dublin and down south was at the beginning. And, uh, and I ended up, you know, really racing a lot in Northern Ireland. Like, but my first big open race, like, when well, I was in Northern Ireland, and it took me probably until, well, it took me until 1985, actually, uh, to win my first big national race in the South of Ireland where I won the Des Hamlin down in Tarla, which is still a huge race in today's world. Like, so uh, that was my very first sort of, you know, arrival, if you want to call it, like on the national scene and certainly into the international scene. Uh, I had represented Northern Ireland uh, a number of times, like before I got on the Irish team and then I think probably that all came to a reasonably big head whenever you know I won a Commonwealth medal in the team time trial and then I was third in the RAS and I was third in the National Road Championship you know I was on the podium if you know what I mean I had sort of arrived and you know in 85 I won a huge amount of national races uh, and, and the overall classic league as well like so you know again um, that era probably in the mid 80s was one of the most prolific time of winning and and stuff and, you know and I was in France as well and there, there was a lot of stuff going on a lot of racing going on you know after being an amateur then I turned professional after I went to the Commonwealth Games again in Auckland and New Zealand in 1990 and then I turned professional I was professional until 97 and, and it was over then for me and uh, you know the really the best I got in that was you know the year that I finished third in the National Professional Road Championship in Le Mans, where I was on the podium with Sean Kelly and Martin Early. That was probably the height of it. And then '97, it was over, and uh, I was sort of riding Grand Fondos. I was riding a lot of sportives and bits and bobs through the 2000, no, from 2000 through to 2009. Uh, then 2007, I uh, I got married earlier in 2000, and uh, my I had two sons and. The second boy that was born, Ross, um, was born when he had a brain tumour. He was five months old. I was in the cancer program with him in the children's hospital in Belfast. And, uh, uh, you know, everything obviously had stopped. And I was in the middle of that. So, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, a year and a half into that, um, I was at a little respite centre down in Newcastle in County Down. And, uh, yeah, I just got really involved in the whole fundraising aspect of what was going on with kids cancer and stuff like that and uh ironically the race around ireland direct it uh i mean i knew nothing about racing around ireland really i just knew there was this huge mad race that went right around ireland and i mean i never rode that distance before in my life uh but what i did know was i was going to do a fundraising bike ride and this 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 event arrived so i decided that i would use it as a platform for fundraising and, and whatever so i gathered up as many people or not I sort of bullied as many people as I could to come with me <laughs> and uh, uh, as I could and uh, you know the rest of it is a bit of history like uh, they had the world champion ride and Fabio Biasali the Italian and the whole saga of the race was it ended up a race between he and I and I ended up beating him in the finish so my very first ultra race ever I won and you know that entered me for Ram and I was still in the cancer program with my son, like, so it took a long time, as you know, going to Ram's not 
an easy feat like in any shape or form in relation to finance or just getting yourself there is a that's a start line in its own right it took a number of years but by 2012 i i gathered up what i needed and i went to ram in 12 again the rest of that's a little bit of history as well where i got sick i got altitude in the first go and uh you know was lucky to get away with my life really and i did get away and i came back and rather than put the whole thing down as a disappointment because it was a big disappointment like it's a big failure for me and uh, to turn that around and it, it would have been easy like to just accept the failure and whatever but i wasn't in a place in my life really that you know was dealing that great with failure uh because the whole cancer thing in its own right had you know for want of a better word it had dragged me down into a fairly black place really and i found it the whole this opportunity to get back into racing again like was light at the end of the tunnel for me like and I and I really did I got a proper kicking in, in race around Ireland but I thought to myself you know if I really got to train and I really got myself organized and shaped up here you know maybe I could do this like and uh, I went back again to Ram in 2014 I finished second in Calgary and 10th overall so I knew then even at that stage that, that you know it was possible so I really started to work hard at what we were doing and you know it took me a while to realize that you know, to compete with these guys at world level, like you, you really need to be able to ride your bike for for a minimum of fifty hours without getting off. And uh, and, and, and just I, to clarify, Joe, in case people didn't hear that, that was five zero hours, was it? Not one five yeah, hours. Yeah, fifty. But it took me a while to grasp that as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know the likes of Strasser and people like this, they they they're phenomenal. They can just go so far without stopping. And if you're stopped, you're losing time. And all of a sudden, well, I think I could put it into context for you. And uh, in 2014, whenever I got to the top of Wolf Creek Pass, like after what it had done to me in 2012, you know, I was having a little bit of a celebration at the top, of, at the Great Divide at the top. But Strasser started 20 minutes off behind me on the start line in Oceanside. And that was the top of Wolf Creek was at, is in Colorado, as you know. And... To put it into context, Strasser at that stage was in Kansas, 300 in front of me, miles. <laughs> uh, and it's at that point, yeah, you know, you, you, you just stand back and you just go, how, you know, how, how did you do that? Uh, so I analysed everything afterwards when we came back and we looked at, you know, what he was doing and what I was doing and what the difference was. And, and it boiled down to one thing that... Uh, a, it was two things. Uh, A, he was able to stay on his bike for 50 hours. And the second thing was he didn't stop in the nighttime. So it became obvious to me that the period of time that I was off the bike, it was because of the nighttime. So I, we analyzed what that was and it was sleep deprivation. So I went through a process in 2016 of trying to understand that and trying to find my way like to be able to deal with it. Uh, and... I took a lean year in 2016. I didn't do too much, really. Uh, it was a bit of a regrouping year. And we'd come off 2015, like, where I had done this record that, that we've just done there now, like, which is Mild and Mizzen and back up again. And it was the reason we chose that was because it was the only distance in the country that was going to be able to, for us to be able to test out, could I do 50 hours or not? And that was the main objective. And, and we thought, well, when we're doing that, we might as well do try a world record. So we applied for it and, and, and we got that all together. And I did... I think it was over 49 and a half hours or something I did it in. But I always knew that 48 hours was achievable for myself. I just didn't know how, how I was going to go about that. And uh, I went to Texas in 2015 straight after that record to the Nocum 1000 race. And it was the first time I'd ever, you know, 
try to go that distance with no stop, but I rode a thousand with no sleep. Uh, I did eighty hours, uh, but that also was a re- uh, you know a learning curve in that I realised that you know it wasn't sustainable at eighty, but I knew I could do fifty, and once I knew I could do fifty, then I always knew then that there was an opportunity then for me to be able to be competitive with these guys. Like when you uh, think about it, Joe, eighty hours is it's nearly four days. Yeah, uh, Texas was really really hard. The, the racing in, in Texas is in a big national park, which is literally the size of Ireland. It's called Big Bend National Park. Uh, you know, there's it's pretty traffic free, but it's really really uh, you know it's harsh terrain. Like it's desert and you know it goes right to the Mexican border. So the temperature was seething into like the forties. Uh, so I got my first experience of desert. I got my first experience of getting cooked at forty degrees. You know, and then there's a pile of altitude because it goes up over uh, a really a really big mountain range uh, with high altitude in it. So it had everything. But you know, in the last sort of 200 miles, last 150, 200 miles in Texas, like, I mean, I was in real trouble. But I managed to bring it to the finish. Like, it wasn't pretty, but I, you know, I, I got it to the finish. But that's when I realized that you couldn't, you know, to do 80 hours, you couldn't recover from it. And I then realized that this this marker point of 50 hours that is globally recognized with the top guys is, is sort of where it is that you can go that far if you can, if you get it all right and you can recover and keep going. When you say 50 hours, Joe, is that 50 hours of continuous pedaling, no rest, no break, or, or is there a little bit of a respite within that 50 hours? No, there's really just toilet breaks. Uh, and if you get really, if it's if you hit cold sections, it's really a matter of pulling over to pull on some leg warmers and, and a warmer top and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, it is really like that. There's no sleep or anything like that. Whenever you get Further into a race like Ram, for example, where you know you're like at day six, seven, eight, or whatever, the, there is sleep breaks in Ram, like you know. But you to get positioned in the race, you have got to be able to go that first section with no sleep. You got to get like you really in a solo, like you really need to be on the other side of Colorado uh, before you go to sleep. Like really. Uh, did I read correctly that you did twenty two hours a day for eleven days for Ram yeah. last year? Yeah. I can't even fathom how you would train yourself to be able to do that. I know well, I it obviously it, is a process over a long period of time, but being able to to just churn that out. And it's not like you're standing around or walking around for those hours. I mean, you're pushing hard on a bike, uh, working yeah. hard all the time for those 22 hours. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. I mean, it, I mean it, I'm not saying it's easy because it's not, but the the reality to it is like, again, we're back to the race. Um, if if you want to be competitive at that level, and that's why I keep saying to people who would say to me, "Oh, you know, they're they're going slower, they're doing this or that," that that's just such a you know an inaccurate assessment of the whole thing. Uh, I mean, if I put Christoph Strasser into a pro race tomorrow, he'd have no problem being at the front end of it. <laughs> that's for sure. But if I put a pro rider in with Strasser and said, "Go for six days with him," he would be nowhere to be seen. Like so, effectively. You know, there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes, uh, you know, with these kind of distances up and above your fitness level on the bike because your mental capability and your mental concentration levels has got to be at the absolute peak of your capability because at the end of the day, it's your mental state that that actually makes the decisions and keeps you pushing forward. I know that there's a crew there that's managing things for you because it's very difficult to make clear decisions when you're under that sort of pressure uh, and they do help immensely like but ultimately you have to keep 
yourself mentally in the place that you can keep driving it. And I think it's one of the parallel lines, like actually between, um, you know, what endurance racing really is and what life and two feet for everyone is, you know, because it's the biggest endurance race we'll ever be in. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it really does, uh, it really does ask, you know, of your resilience, like to the absolute. And it's funny, before we came uh, onto the recording of the show, we were chatting about, um, you know, say the Ironman distance races. So you've 17 hours to complete an Ironman, but yet the likes of yourself and those that race in Ram and race around Ireland and all those big uh, multi-day endurance races are doing this for longer in terms of the hourly time on the day for multiple days. It's um, it's quite incredible, really, what you can put the body through when you train it to be able to do it. Yeah, you know, uh, absolutely. Um, I think, like, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that, it, that it has taught us, anyway, and it certainly taught me, everything is possible, right? And and in every race, uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in it, there will come a, a point when your head, your mind wants to tell you that it's not possible. And one of the tools that we use is that we suspend the disbelief that it's possible. We neither believe that it is possible or not possible. Uh, and what that does is it tends to free up pressure. It, it releases pressure. Uh, and what you can do is it allows you to actually just go back to the fundamentals of why you actually do what you're doing, which is just ride your bike to enjoy it. And what happens is you ride yourself through a period of time where you ride into this clarity again, where you can get back into the concentration and back into the race, but you haven't stopped. And that's one of the tools that we use, like, you know, to, and we call it just suspending your disbelief. That's what we call it. Uh, we ask ourselves, have we been here before? And what does that look like? Uh, and can we suspend where we are right now until we get to the next part? And that's where you'll hear people putting that same thing into different ways. People say, oh, well, I just look at the next part of the horizon or I think about the next mile or I think about, and that's just what life is. You know, life's just about, you know, trying to get through what's in front of you right now, like, and hoping tomorrow brings another picture. It's really that simple. You you talked earlier, Joe, when you were chatting about your career um, and about your son when he was he was unwell um, as a, as a young child about getting into a very dark uh, place. But yeah. how how do you do you go into dark places when you're racing? If you hit a dark patch in your mind, how do you pull yourself out of it? I think one of the things is that I do is uh, you know I have as you know we have a I have a team or people around me or you bring multiple skill sets to, to to the whole thing of what we do and they have their positions each and every one of them like their positions is crucial for what they do uh, so what i do is i reach out to the team when i'm in real trouble uh, and we you know my partner Jill and i uh, you know work on a you know we live a performance lifestyle first of all on a day-by-day -day basis uh, so we i don't put myself through ram every single day of my life i put myself through ram when i'm in it Every other day, you know, is a performance lifestyle that, that deals with mental aspect, deals with nutrition, deals with you just your well-being and everything else. And you look after yourself to the absolute pinnacle. However, when I'm in the race, you know, Jill and I will, we have this, this table of numbers where it's one to five. And Jill, I'll reach out to Jill and I'll just say, I'm in trouble here. And she'll go, right, where is it? And scale one to five. And I'll go, it's a three, it's a four or it's a five or whatever. Um. And, and they talk, help to talk me through where I'm at. 
Uh, and part of that whole conversation is like, you know, are we in a position that we can suspend disbelieving here? You know, and we talk through piece by piece, which again, you know, if you really look at life, uh, people who are in trouble in their own lives or whatever, from a mental aspect, uh, you know, being on their own, you know, isn't the way forward. Like, you know, reaching out like for to people that's around them to help them in that place will work. Uh, you know, so it, again, there's there's a great parallel line like between when you're in that place and the race where the race is pushing you into that place. I mean, we all accept the fact that we're there all willingly doing what we're doing. You know, we're all volunteering to do what we're doing. There's no one making us do it. Um, but you know, it's a very calculated position that you that you're in. It's not. You know, some people think it's a little bit stupid, but there's a very fine line between being extremely good at what you do and, and, and stupidity like and we don't go to that over that line uh, because there's no need to we have all the skill sets in place there and then at any given time to be able to deal with that um, and that's that's how we deal with it you mentioned Jill and, and the crew there Joe and the importance of the trust you place as a rider into your crew to ensure that they get you to the start line, but then that they also get you to the finish line because it's not just about you on the bike. It's actually about your crew as well. Whilst you're the person with the records and with the accolades and all of that, you're, you you couldn't do that without your crew. No, absolutely not. I mean, it, it, we, we are a unit as one and, and any one aspect of that that isn't functional or isn't there weakens the complete unit. It's as simple as that. Yes, I'm ultimately the guy that rides a bike, and I'm ultimately the guy that's got to get it all there. Like, but you know, the input that they put in directly behind me from all the different aspects that that are that are in part of the team. Like, I mean, it just wouldn't work. It's just it's not possible to do that. So, uh, I actually correct sometimes when people interview or whatever. You know, that it is not me. That it is we. We see ourselves as a team. That's why we're called. Like, if you look at the name on our team, okay, it's called Team Joe Bar. But the word team comes first, and that's purposeful. And, uh, and of course, having somebody like Jill in your corner as well, who's a performance nutritionist, is obviously of a huge benefit to you from a daily perspective as well as an overall racing perspective. And I'd love to delve a little bit into some of the fueling and the nutrition piece, because I know the listeners will be interested in that side of it as well, Joe. So we spoke earlier um, before we came on air here and you had done a, a training ride today. You had done an easy one, which was four hours on the back of a seven hour one yesterday. Um, and the training is very important, but so is that whole side around nutrition and fueling and and sleep and recovery. So can you talk us through what that performance lifestyle is like when you are training? Well, you know, first of all, you know, I'm the first person to say I'm in a very privileged position here. Like, you know, I, I you know, tell A, my partner, but she's also the nutritionist that runs my sporting life. So I have it, I have it both ways, if you want to call it that. I have my cake and, I, and I'm eating it. Like, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a unique situation. Like, and it's, uh, you know, the, from my perspective of the whole thing, like, you know, my telling my private life's the key part for me, obviously. Uh, but, I mean, our performance lifestyle, you know, we live it. And, that, you know, it's not, Jill just doesn't, you know, come on the race and hand me bars and stuff like that. I mean, we, we're going through a very, very uh, specific, um, let's call it sets of menus per day. And Jill's actually cooking it and preparing it and doing, I mean, it is a full-time job uh, in its own right to do that, as well as all the work she does behind the scenes in relation to actually running the team as well, because she handles most of 
the administration stuff and all the media and all she deals with sponsors and all sorts like so I mean it's a huge job that she does uh, so you know I just don't want it, it to be seen that that's all she does because that wouldn't be accurate um, but uh, you know again I, I go back to the performance lifestyle you know we everything when you're trying to be the best you can be there there's there ultimately has to be sacrifices like and you know that's it's a it's a, it's a sheltered life if you want to call it because you know we sacrifice what most people just take for granted like you know going out to dinner regularly and doing we don't do an awful lot and that's something we're trying to actually repair to, to actually get to do other things like because racing takes up so much time and running the team takes up so much time so uh but the structure that she has for running my daily training the structure for pre-race, in-race and recovery from race are all different structures that she all puts together according to how broken I am. And, and each race, because of the distance and the intensity, like brings you home in a much more broken or less state. Uh, so, you know, working all of that out also needs a huge amount of knowledge and like Jill's highly qualified uh, globally at what she does. So again, I know I have the absolute best that that you could ever imagine like so I have a responsibility to make sure that I deliver my end of that uh, so again you know we're, we're we're just showing up every day ensuring that we're trying the best we can to be the best that we are um, and I think some of the results that we've turned out is evidence of the fact that when you do it like this it's all possible. Leaving no stone unturned is a, a phrase that comes to mind, Joe, in terms of your whole effort, both as individually for yourself, but also for Jill and, and the team and everybody that's surrounding you. Because, you know, we know ourselves from having done Race Around Ireland or Donegal, having the logistics yep. and the team and the support around you is paramount uh, to ensuring that you can deliver the results that you're going out to get day in, day out. Yeah, it's really all about the preparation, um, and you know, I think it. I think one of the, the greatest pieces of evidence of of that is, I mean, anyone you know who has been around me or close to me over all the many years that I've been racing bikes will know uh, that I've always followed a fairly strict regime in relation to nutrition and training and preparation. I mean, one of one of the greatest aspects that I have in my life for, for my own racing is that. I wake up every single day at 61 years old and I'm still as motivated today to go training and, and to get to be the best I can than I was when I was 22 or 21. Now, don't ask me why that is. I don't know. But the reality is I have it. And uh, and that's one thing I'm very, very, very proud to be able to get up every day. I have an incredible work ethic. Like I work incredibly hard. You know, it doesn't come easy because as a writer, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, you know, one of the greatest writers. I'm pretty good, but I work incredibly hard at every other aspect to make myself the best I can be. And I think that that's a bit that's shining through now as well. Like, you know, that if you go through a lifetime of what I've gone through and a lifetime of, of you know, performance living and, and that type of lifestyle, you know, at 61, you'd be hard pushed to say, like, I'm not high level performance yet. I, I think you're being very humble in what you say that you're not a great athlete. I think you're absolutely phenomenal. And the fact that you're still, 
continuing to blaze a trail in endurance cycling and in sport generally and inspire so many people as you take on these challenges. Um, and they're, they're not just easy challenges, Joe, they're epic adventure challenges. Um, I think yeah. you're being very humble in, in how you're speaking there. Um, it's quite incredible watching you. I want to ask you a little bit about being under pressure because you do have such a huge CV of success. Uh, both as a young rider, a professional rider, cross-endurance racing. Do you ever feel under pressure going into the start line of a race? And I, I don't mean pressure to perform for your sponsors or for your team. I mean for yourself. You know, how, how do you deal with the pressure? Or do you ever feel it? Well, yeah, yes, is the answer. <laughs> I do feel it. <laughs> uh, I don't think I'm any different than any, any other performer in that, right? Um, one thing, you know, it's something Jill and I talk about a lot. Um, it's something I seem to have in, in myself. I have a lot of self-belief. I, I, you know, there's times we'll, we'll talk about something, something that, you know, where we're going to go to race before we start sitting down to negotiate all of that. And Jill and I will have a talk about it. And she, you know, she would say to me, well, what makes you think you can win that? You know, and I give her my honest opinions as to why I think I can, like, but I'm also very aware that, you know, if I was confronted with something where I go, mm, that's beyond me, I would just say it's beyond me. Uh, to date in endurance racing, I haven't come up against anything that's beyond me. And, uh, you know, I've had to work a lot of it out because, it, you know, I just didn't know how to go about it and whatever. But I, I never had not had the belief in my riding capability to be able to do that. And it was something I've always, always had. And I think the second aspect of it is that, Growing up, you know, all I ever wanted to do was be a professional pushback rider. That's all I ever wanted to be like. Um, and it's kind of all I still want to be, if the truth be told. Like. <laughs> but um, that desire has carried me through a huge amount. And, and, and to become, you know, a professional rider, your aspirations are always like to, is always, like, always, always globally based. They're never domestically based. Um, so I, I've always performed really well in big events uh, and whenever that it's big pressure and big chips I can always pull out a really 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 good ride uh, whereas in domestic type races or whatever sometimes I don't perform as well and I don't really know why that is like but I do I do function well in uh, in, in in global racing and you know racing around the world really really suits me like and I I, th I like the heat as well so um, I can I can perform well in fairly large temperature, like well as long as I manage all the details that goes with it when I'm in it, uh, in, in relation to hydration and stuff like that. I've, as long as I get that part of it all right, you know. Sometimes in races like Ram, where the temperature is just you know beyond belief in the desert in Arizona, I mean it's it, it's incredible. So managing your hydration levels and managing all the stuff and keeping your core temperature cool and all that stuff, all the process that goes around that, if you manage that well, I can perform well in heat. Uh, and you know I don't do so well in altitude. To be fair, uh, I struggle a lot with altitude. But you know, I'm a sea level guy. I was born here. Like so it's not easy to do. Like I've overcome it, mustered my way through it. But it's, <laughs> it's certainly not 
it's not my forte, to be honest. <laughs> and, and you mentioned altitude there, and, and you did end up in grave danger in Ram due to um, the, the altitude part yeah. of, of the race and obviously had to DNF, which is something that you never really want to see or hear when oh. you're racing. And no rider wants, wants to have that or no athlete wants to have a, a, a DNF. But how do you come back from the disappointment of something like a DNF, Joe, or, or disappointment in a race where maybe you were gunning for a win and you didn't get it, you maybe got second, or something happens like a crash or, you know, how, how do you come back? How do you convince yourself to come back better and stronger after something that maybe might have been out of your control has affected your performance? Yeah, I think uh, I certainly, uh, from my point of view anyway, um, in 2012, obviously what happened, uh, it was it was certainly the, the biggest failure uh, that, that I had endured. Um, you know, it, you got to remember it was very public, like because the media had covered so much uh, on me going to race across America, especially in the solo category back then. I mean, it's different now. There's there's some other writers starting to come through or whatever. Back then, like it was big news. And to answer your question, how did I, how did I come back from it? I mean, there was a couple of things. Like I look back on it now. That particular, I call it failure, like because it was the biggest failure that had actually happened in my in my career. Um, you know, you got to remember uh, there was an awful lot of media around the fact that I was going to the race to start off with, and um, you know, I think just coming from the situation that I, that I had just come from with my son and whatever, there was there was a huge amount of media attention to that, and then just the sheer level of what actually happened. Um, when I did come back from from there, when I got back to Ireland, like it took six months roughly to to overcome the the whole medical aspect of what happened, and then it took a lot longer for me because I had a lot of self questioning, really. Um, you know, because there was there was only two aspects to where I was positioned then, and that was that I was say they're going to let that whole situation, you know, finish everything for me, or I was going to try to see if I could find a way, you know, forward, like to try and see if I could figure out could I go back again like I think ultimately it, it did it did boil down to one thing and you know a total question of my own personal resilience really as to how you know how I was actually they're going to let it become the full stop uh, and the whole thing be over on the back of a big failure that you would probably never recover from again and my own personal situation at that time really didn't it would not have been a good place for me to have gone to I, I dread to think where I might end up to be honest um, but you know I took a lot of time I knew I was going to have to sign up for, you know, a fairly uh, uh, aggressive package of knuckling down and getting fit again, finding the finance. I mean, there was an awful lot of factors to the whole thing uh, to just to turn around and say, right, I'm going to go back to Ram in 2014. As you know, like that's not an, going to Ram is not an easy task, even on a one off basis. That was sort of the middle of 2013 at that stage we had got to. Like, so I had maybe or maybe a year or slightly less than a year to put it all together and get myself back in the groove. And I really did knuckle down. Like I, you know, I worked, I got a lot of help. Don't get me wrong. I had a lot of help with people who helped me to put the finance package together, but I really knuckled down like with uh, training and, and just preparation and whatever. And I mean, when I went around in 2014, I was in really good shape. I was also very, very determined like to, to make sure that I, that I absolutely buried what happened in 2012. Uh, and I also learned a lot from 2012 as well as to how to manage myself better in the race. I still wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I was a lot better in 2014 than I was in 2012. I had some more professional people on the team with me and I had more knowledge on the team with me. And I had some extra equipment that I didn't have. You know, I had ice vests and I had altitude meters and I had stuff that I didn't have in 2012. 
uh, and uh, and it proved a big a big uh, advantage. And I and I went in 2014, and as I say, I was second in the category. And I mean, I was I was up against probably the best guy in the world in that category, in Hans Neffler, the Swiss guy, like at that year. And Hans, he won, you know, beat me in the category. Like, but I still managed to be in the top ten overall in in Ram, you know, age category or not. So it was just then, you know, directly after that uh, Ram that that Jill and I got back together again. Like, because you got to remember, Jill worked with me like when I was a professional writer, like back in the mid nineties, and uh, we got back together again. Like, and uh, you know, both in life and in sport. And uh, uh, I mean, I think I would put down a, I, I certainly would put uh, a huge uh, contribution, like of the you know upward trajectory of capability and results and all of that. It was because of her, to be honest, and uh, and and that's proven to be the case to this day. And Joe, do you spend a lot of time reflecting on the performances and pinpointing from every race that you do what went right, what went wrong, you know, what can be improved on the next time around, and looking at what the failures maybe sometimes you learn more from those than you do from the races that that you go well in or from the yeah. little bits that mightn't yeah. have gone well how you can improve them the next time and how important those small tweaks to performance nutrition recovery or to even to aspects of your kit and your crew that can make such a huge difference to the next race yeah you know it, it's something that john like us through quite a lot um, and, we, and I, you know from a nutritional point of view uh, because i'm not the like i'm the first person to say i'm not the easiest writer actually to manage nutritionally um i i go through huge different phases in the races like of taste and taste fatigue is a big issue like in, in endurance racing i mean they have there's a term for it it's not like something that's, that you're actually making up like that your body goes through huge different changes and how it how it actually can actually adapt to the tastes that you would be normally used to and like Joel has a vast array of 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 a menu that she can bring with her mobile like and it's and when you see what she does mobile i mean i'll never get i'll never get over 2018 race around ireland i, I mean i've seen her do things in that race that's just even to this day i'm I'm still bowled over by, by what she achieved, like, um, you know, even in how she uses food to help me to go to sleep and stuff like that. I mean, it's just an incredible uh, system that she operates. Yet and all, I've been in races where I've put her in that much turmoil. She has struggled to be able to get me what I need uh, or she just didn't have it or we couldn't get to a place that I could get contented and like the frustration that that brings for her like it's just incredible like so it's a very it's not an easy task it's a very very difficult task so we go through that after every race uh, and and as we've done that we've got better and better and better and better and then from a team point of view every race that we finish we have a debrief for the team uh, actually the record that we did there a few weeks ago the debrief is this friday night uh, and that's sitting down with each individual because you must remember that although that eight or ten people or whatever it is that's on the race with me, even though they're on the same race, they're having a completely different experience of the same race than I am. And each individual, one of them, is having a different race experience than the other. So when you sit and debrief that and listen to everybody's perspective and they give everybody the platform to be able to say, right, in your environment with your skill sets, where did you see the cracks and what is it that we need to do? there to try and improve that and you have to go through that as a process 
And, and if you do that, you will slowly but surely iron out all the cracks and you'll get better and better and better and better and better. Like we go into some fine detail, like even bike changes and, you know, how we operate people in cars, how we run shifts of people in cars, down to simple things like how do we, you know, how do we fuel cars to make sure that, you know, everything's still running smoothly and blah, 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 all the small detail because, the, you know, the success is, believe it or not, in the detail. Do you ever get scared, Joe? Ah, <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to ask you to put scared into context for me. Scared of... Like, is there anything that frightens you or scares you? Um, I, I'm going to be a little bit... Um, uh, I don't know how, how this will get received, received like, but I, I don't I don't have fear, actually. And uh, because it's, it's, it's not really about that. Um, one of the things that the whole um, situation with my son taught me, uh, and it did teach me a lot, actually, uh, it... And one of the things that it taught me was it taught me where the true ownership of time actually lies. That was the first thing that it taught me uh, because I had a very different perspective of what that was up until that time. Um, and there's one thing that I do know in my life now that there's nothing that I take on in my life that's going to bring more fear than I had then. That's an absolute truth. Um, so I don't have fear of what I what I do have is I have a huge respect for what I'm taking on. Um, uh, you know, do I have a fear of going to the start line and race across America? No. But when I look down the start line and go, I'm not getting off this bike for 3,000 miles, you know, it gets your attention. So you have to give it respect. <laughs> so, you know, I, I give it respect, but I'm not afraid to take it on. Um, and I think from a competitive point of view, I think, you know, it's what I always tell all the people that we coach, uh, you know, Everything that you, everything that you take on, like is, it, just be respectful of it. The, the bottom line is, another writer ta- taught me that th- that what we do every day, that when we go down insurances or whatever, is nothing short of an absolute privilege to be able to do it to start off with. And sometimes it's easy to take the whole thing for granted, and that's something I don't do either. I, I don't take it for granted. I'm very aware that it's a privilege for me to get to every start line that I get to. And it's also another privilege to get to the end of it, all intact and everything in good shape. But I also don't take risks. I never push beyond the absolute limits. I'm in this to try and be the best I can. I'm in it for sport and I'm in it to entertain people and inspire people. And we have been doing all of that. And we've been doing all of that because we make good decisions at the right time. Uh, you know, I don't push till I crash. I, I don't push till I fall asleep. I stop. And, and you, there's a limit to what you do because there's a fine line between being inspirational and being stupid. And I, I try very hard not to be stupid. <laughs> um, in terms of um, heart rate or power, Joe, are you using both or rate of perceived effort? I know that there'll be plenty of people will want to know what you're doing from the performance side on that aspect of it on the bike. Well, um, probably at my age, I, I better just put it in context and go, I'm a bit old school. <laughs> And uh, you're still a young at heart, Joe. Doesn't matter what well, age you are, you're always going to be young at heart. Possibly, <laughs> I hope so. But uh, I do use both, right? Uh, but I'm going to say that uh, 95% of my performance is driven around my heart rate measurements, uh, and a small part of it is around wattage because. For me, in my world, um, I see wattage as another form of information and data. That's that's how I view it. Um, however. That piece of information has no relationship as to be able to tell you exactly how your body's recovering from what it has previously done. Now, after all, 
my understanding of physiology is, is a very simple one. Like it's a mathematical equation for me. Um, and everything that you do is driven by your heart rate. You know, your the power that you generate is driven from the heart rate that you can sustain um, and so on and so forth. Like the two complement each other. But if I did a seven hour training session today at whatever level I did it at, and I went to a wattage count to actually interpret whether I had recovered tomorrow from that or not, it couldn't tell me that information. I still got to re- retrieve back my heart rate to understand how I recovered. When you understand the parameters of where the heart rates all are, uh, and that's effectively what I do. I run fairly close prox, you know, fairly close measurement on a monthly, bi-monthly basis, like of where those heart rate parameters have shifted to, uh, or not shifted to, and where they are. But because I'm so far down the line in my career, I almost can tell by feel. And the other thing that we do in endurance racing is um, everything's about sustainability. Uh, and big power over a very short period of time really doesn't get you very far, really, uh, because big power eats up an awful lot of calorie. It eats up a lot of glycogen, and you've got to replace that, and you don't have the opportunity to do that in an endurance race because you can't stop. Uh, and if you do drive yourself into that position, the only way you can recover from it is to stop. So it becomes counterproductive. So, you know, sustainable power has its place for sure, but how I measure uh, both my output and my recovery is solely by heart rate. You mentioned a few minutes ago about it being a privilege to do what you do and to be an endurance racer. And I think that if COVID has taught us anything, it's that we should accept and be grateful for the little things that we do have and that we have our health and that I think we're very lucky as athletes that we do have sport to call on um, from a physical, mental, emotional aspect that we're able to get on our bike or we're able to go for a swim or we're able to to get out and go for a run because there's so many people who don't have that gift uh, of being able to do that. Absolutely, absolutely. I think COVID, um, I see COVID as one of the, the greatest opportunities for people to, you know, to use the term of hit the reboot button in their lives um, I, I, and that's that's exactly what I did with it here whenever this all happened um, and you know we were I just got back from Florida for the first round of the World Series and then all of a sudden this thing happened and everything as you knew that you had planned and agreed and contracted to and all of that stuff all just became a non-starter it was just stopped and for me I'm in a unique position to, to some people uh, not all people but to some people in that I know what that was like whenever my son got sick and my life just you know, just pittered into non-existence in weeks. Matter of fact, my life changed from 11 a.m. in the morning to 3 p.m. that afternoon to never even resemble ever again what it was before. Uh, so I know what that is. Um, you know, I've sat in the hospital for four days and four nights nonstop. Uh, I've done all of that. It's where actually I got the idea that I could go to Race Around Ireland in 2009 because I thought to myself, well, you know, I've already done the sleep bit thing that goes with this race. I've sat in here all day and all night. Uh, and surely if I can ride the bike, I can put the two together and it'll work some shape or form. And that's effectively the rawness that I went to race around Ireland in 2009 with. And look what it got me and look where it has taken me. Because up until that point, I was just another statistic. This thing had happened to and life had stopped. Everything that I was doing that the day before that happened really just stopped. And... A huge amount of the people that you think are in your life at that point all just slowly disappear. But it gets to the point that they don't even know how to actually interact with you because they don't know what to say to you. And it just gets less and less and less. Um, so COVID for me was 
another version of that. That's what it was. So I this time I was waiting on, and I said to myself, no. And I said to Jill, I said, no, I'm not letting this happen. Like basically, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to train so hard that I'm going to be in the best shape of my life. And whenever this lockdown changes, I'm going to hit the ground running. That's exactly what happened. It brings me right through nicely to talk to you about your recent world record, which was only set a couple of weeks ago. Three world records in one big mammoth endurance adventure from Malinhead to Mizzenhead, Mizzenhead to Malinhead, and then the joint Malin, Mizzen, Mizzen, Malin. An incredible performance, Joe, in some of the worst weather that we've seen this month so far. Yeah, it was. That's for sure. The weather wasn't kind again, so it wasn't like, you know, but we, well, I just said to you, like, you know, when we trained so hard and Jill and I worked so hard with everything, like through the whole COVID lockdown, like, I mean, because we were no different than anyone else. We were locked away, but we were very fortunate here in that I was still allowed to ride outside. Uh, unlike the Southern Ireland, where it was closed down, uh, I just, I, I said to myself, if I waste this opportunity, it's my fault and I'm not going to do it. And when we prepared, took on the record, I always believed that doing that record, it was possible to go faster in 48 hours. I always knew that and you know it was one of those events like that you know I love racing in this country like it's it's unique I mean I'll never forget race around Ireland 2018 it was just an incredible race this opportunity just came along and up until now we've always sort of sheltered the route and you know we've kept that to ourselves and whatever and this time John and I sat down and we thought about it and we just said look you know it's not going to be many more times I'm going to be racing up down through Ireland in my lifetime like so maybe now is the time to give it away and that's why we put it on the GPS tracking tool system and we opened it up and I mean I think anybody who followed the race will tell you like the the sheer number of public that was on the side of the road from the start to the finish of that race was just absolutely incredible and I mean I'll never forget it I think all the years and all the races that I've rode in Ireland like it there'll, there'll never be anything that'll ever surpass it because endurance racing generally doesn't get a huge amount of spectators um you know the finish line could be at two o'clock in the morning and you might have your own crew and the race director and a couple of other people but you'll never get that big sense of occasion in endurance racing unless it's a very specific event or you finish during a reasonable hour in the day the spectator support must have boosted your confidence and your will to push on the whole way through yeah you know i mean i think that I think that the piece that's, that's just so unique about that particular race was, and this is absolute truth, like there's a section in Limerick and it was in the night time and the second night coming back up through, you know, it was like gone midnight or whatever. It was absolutely pouring down with rain, blowing wind everywhere. And there's a section where the way we go through Limerick, we try to avoid the city and, and, uh, and there's a fairly lengthy climb in it. And the whole way from the bottom to the top of the climb was absolutely lined with people shouting cowbells going all sorts and I mean it was like that all the way groups of people even at Muslim Head uh, and groups in nearly every town I went through uh, and there was people at junctions in the middle of the night time just stood I remember going to coming up to a junction near Athlone somewhere and there was a group of guys standing on the junction all clapping two or three o'clock in the morning like, it was pouring rain it was bad weather that's for sure but I was in such a good place in my head to be honest with you I knew 10 miles after I started I just knew that I was going to be on an absolute winning ride like because my head was right and when your head's right in the right place and you know you're going to fight and it was going to it would have taken something uh, pretty bad like to to don't the ride regardless of what time it would have ended up in like I mean it it turned out that both legs were pretty even, you know, they were within 20 minutes of each other, like uh, time-wise, like, so 
that part of it was 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 really really good. Like, but I also think as well, it's you know, it's it's only fair to say as well that the the following that we had on social media, and I mean, we've as you know, we have done a lot of big races around the world where we've had a lot of people following us. Like, but that particular race has outperformed from a social media following any other race in the world. It was over. It was 1.2 million people followed us on social media. But I think it's such an iconic thing that you've done, Joe, that you've gone from the most northerly tip of Ireland to the most southerly tip and back. It's something that we can we can all identify with it because most of us have been to Mizzenhead and Malinhead. And then to just think that you've cycled the length of the country and back, you know, although many of us will never do it and we'll never um, feel it or experience it, but we can appreciate what it is and what you've done. And we know the terrain and we know what the roads are like and the weather is like. And I think it just, it, it, yeah. captured the imagination of so many people when during COVID there isn't an awful lot to capture um, for imagination nope. and also dot watching must be recognised <laughs> as a sport and for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what dot watching is it's basically when you are watching the dots on a map of the rider and or his or her crew uh, you're watching the dots to see where they are across the map it is a whole other sport and I think having your GPS tracker actually helped us all because I know I was glued to it in so yeah. far as possible Ooh. and I know that a lot of our own crew were as well I think it you know it was just after the COVID thing like in every as you say everyone you know had been locked away or whatever this was people have got used to things digitally now like in following things on the internet and whatever like and this was just something that they could relate to more importantly uh, it was blatantly obvious to me that there was a lot of people just ordinary people who were not associated to cycling who realized and this thing was happening and realized by following the dot that this was coming by their home or going by their through their town or whatever and the piece that was uh the most uh inspiring for me as a writer was that we talk about you know there's an awful lot of talk goes around what we do like where it's inspirational and it, and we hope that people get involved and try it themselves or you know and whatever these families were out with their kids and there was actually there was families that had actually dressed up in costume and had posters and everything all drew with my name on. I finished the race and you go you get in the car and you're being drove home and you go to yourself right. After the sheer volume of people I've seen on the side of the road, is there one is there one of those children that's going to become you know what I became because I was coloring in pictures on the back of a cereal pack? Are they going to become the one because they were on the side of the road on that day when this guy went through that their mom and dad took them out to see? Possibly, and that's. Just, that's that's the bit for me that that was so different and so unique, and I doubt if it'll ever be replicated again. Like it certainly won't be for me. I can't see it for me anyhow. You know, again, we have so many guys now that we we're, we're taking on our own team. You know, on one-off basis and whatever, where we're trying to introduce them into. You know, we're trying to put them inside the team to say this is what it's like on the inside. Two actually to ran with us last year, and I know as writers they came back and they were transformed as writers uh so you know we're, we're trying to do a lot of that kind of stuff as well like you know so it's i'm personally getting to the stage now like you know where i know the end is coming i am very aware of that i'm not just sure exactly where it is like but i know it's coming and uh you know it's time to give away the roots and put them on a tracker and introduce the new people and show the people you know how, how we do things and how you can do this and it doesn't take long for that to grow and manifest i mean i look now after we started our own race series four years ago now. Like you know, I look at it now, like and the entries are completely full in all the races. When COVID's a little bit different, like but on a normal basis, like in a normal year, the entries are full in all the distances. One of the reasons we started the two hundred mile race was like to allow people to go from like what mainstream would be or sporty riding would be to just 
dip their toe in to try what ultra racing was like. And the 200 race that we run every year now is by far the biggest entry. Um, so if you look at Ireland as a country with the population that we've got versus all the other countries that is around the world, you know, we have six really high quality endurance races in this country every year. The race around Ireland, the ultra both World Cup races, our 500 World Cup race, our 330 and our 200, and you have the 555. I know it's not part of the World Series, like, but it's still a very, very, very good ultra race in, in this country. I think it's a great legacy like to leave behind. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, and even to see the explosion of the number of people who are firstly taking up cycling as a pastime or a leisure or a hobby, but then to actually see the endurance cycling explosion as well is fantastic i mean i had probably never heard of race around ireland before 2016 um, i certainly hadn't heard of the donegal ultra i had probably heard of race across america but now they're all a daily part of life that we see um and i suppose maybe we're tuned into it a little bit more because we're connected to it or we've been part of the family or the alumni for some of the races obviously not ram but say donegal and and yeah. the race around ireland but being able to go out there and to perform and to to do those races and provide the little bit of inspiration for people to think that well if if they can do it or he can do it or she can do it well maybe then I can do it and I totally agree with you in the sense of that Joe Bar 200 race is just that little bit out of reach of people that it's not something you consider doing lightly but it's a bit like you do a sprint triathlon and then you think well maybe an Ironman is within my reach and I think that's yeah. what's lovely about that distance because it is certainly doable with a lot of work for people but it's not yeah. completely out of reach and it does allow you dip your toe uh, into endurance bike racing yeah absolutely and you know when we we started the series at the start we had the 200 and in 2017 when i won the world 500 championship we asked the world governing body what if they would you know would be interested if we put a 500 race on would you know would they include it in the 500 mile world championship which ultimately happened and we got to the european championship round last year and uh you know, the reason that we have the 330 race is because we realized that the step from the people who had tried the 200 and had managed to finish it, the gap from that to five was still too great. So we put one in the middle and it now has become successful in its own right for that reason. And I think one of the things, is, the other thing as well, like that, you know, up and above putting the races in the right place and, and getting in the credit at world level, I was very fortunate after 2017 World Championship, I got voted onto the board of directors for the World Body. Uh, I don't talk an awful lot about it really, like, but because uh, I've never been on a board in my life before, like, but uh, you know, slowly over the last year and a half working on the board, I handle all the European insurance races that, that happen in Europe uh, on behalf of the World Body. I interact with the organizers and whatever. So I've become very familiar, and we've built a great European community of races now. When you look at it, nearly every country has a minimal of a one top endurance race each year. Obviously, this year with COVID has changed everything for everyone. Like, but in a normal year again, like, I mean, nearly every country uh, now we've we've got a, a world endurance race in. So no longer is the sport like it was say two three years ago, where it was very predominantly US orientated. Now the board is actually almost in two halves, you know, where you have the likes of Marco and myself and we have Luca Massini from Italy and whatever sitting on the board. And then you have also the American aspect of that. And, you know, slowly but surely we're we're altering the rules to be more inclusive of the whole globe. So bit by bit, we're trying to grow the sport globally, never talk it domestically. Uh, but it also allows me to bring the information and the understanding of how the word body are actually 
you know, deliberating and directing the sport to bring that back to the grassroots of the whole thing. Like, and people who are coming into the sport new to be able to educate them in a way that will serve them well if they continue in the sport globally or if they want to go to another country to race or whatever, that they understand how the sport works, how they understand how the rules work, and they understand how they can go about doing that, even to the point now where we're changing, you know, the way the rules are in the world body, like to accommodate that, uh, because some of the rules was predominantly very US orientated because the sport was so great in America. But now that's that's changing, like, and, uh, and being part of that has been incredibly interesting for me and and it's probably someone you know i'll set my three years on the board and 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 hopefully i'll have made a difference there like in some shape or form but i really do believe we've made a difference in europe and i I think it's important as well joe for people to give back like you're doing as well and it's important as a leader in the field that you're in that you're you're supporting the rest of the community as well not only with your races but also from a strategic level in terms of where endurance racing might go in ireland or in europe or across the world and i think that's hugely important because it would be an awful shame to lose all of your information by you maybe just deciding to just keep cycling retire do your own thing domestically here but actually helping to influence the sport at an international level is a huge legacy to leave behind and i'm conscious that i've taken up an awful lot of your time and I probably could talk to you for another well probably for another five days um at (laughs) least we could probably keep talking but I just have two more questions for you and the first one is for anybody who's listening who is maybe contemplating stepping into the whole world of endurance racing what would be your best piece of advice for them in terms of either stepping up in distance or looking at a race or an opportunity that they might consider doing as their first foray into endurance racing I think that one of the things, the first thing that I would advise people to do is not to complicate the answer that you're asking the question of. People will say, right, I've done 120 miles. And they say, I don't think or could I do 200? You know, it's very easy to complicate the answer to that by saying, I don't have this and I don't have that and I don't know about the other thing and whatever. You know, forget about all of that stuff. I mean, you can get to the start line of, a 200 race like our race or whatever or any other race really like the 555 you can get to the start line of of any of those races with the most basic pieces of equipment and one person to help you and it's all about making your way you know making your way through your journey and stop don't view it like from what someone else's journey looks like or what someone else's race looks like or this guy over here is a professional i need to get like that you know you, you don't need to do that you, you know all i say to you is just suck it and see just get to the start line see where the problems are see where the mistakes are and go to the next one it's as simple as that bit by bit bit, bit. the only person that's going to judge you is yourself <laughs> Uh, no one's going to judge you for trying. And uh, and the other thing is, like like I always tell everybody, and especially in pushbike racing, you got to become a great loser to become a good winner. And don't worry about where the result is. No, the result in endurance racing is finishing. If you've finished, you've overcome the obstacle. And that's what endurance racing is. It's just a series of obstacles that you have to overcome. And you have to adapt and overcome them on the side of the road. That's what you need to do. If you learn from that, you'll be able to take that into your own life. So how you adapt on two wheels will transfer onto adapting how you behave on two feet. There's no difference. Definitely some sound advice there. And my final question for you, Joe, is what has been the highlight of your career to date? Um, that's a very good question, actually, because, you know, I have lots of highlights of, 
you know, different things happen, different races around the world for all the different times in your life. Like, but uh, I think I think one of the, the the most special moments for me personally, uh, and I'm going to say me personally here, like because everybody else has a different opinion. Like, but I think when we went, when Jill and I went to the start of Race Across America in 2019. That was a very special moment for me because uh, Jill and I sat uh, around a kitchen table in 1993 talking about Race Across America when no one in Ireland even knew what it was, right? I actually knew about Race Across America before I knew about anything about Race Around Ireland because I was actually racing in, in Europe at the time and the only mainstream writer that ever crossed over from mainstream professional into endurance racing to win it was Jonathan Barr. And I read the article about Jonathan Barr winning this race in America called Race Across America, blah, 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 blah. And in 1993, I broke the UCI record from Mizzenhead to Fairhead in County Antrim, which is actually the two furthest points in Ireland, not the most northerly and most southerly. Uh, because, you know, Sometimes it never really gets documented, but I did 19 hours and four minutes from Mizzenhead to Fairhead in 1993. And I wrote a handwritten letter to the organizer of Race Across America to ask him if that record, which was UCI accredited, would allow me to get into Race Across America because I really didn't even know how to get into it. Uh, and he wrote back to me and said yes, that they would accept that. But I never got because we couldn't raise the sponsorship and, and whatever. And then my career ended and that just all fell apart. So... For Jill and I to go to the start line and race Cosmo again in 2019, after that period of time from 1993, was that was a special moment for me. Thank you so much for joining me. I genuinely could keep talking to you. In fact, I could just keep listening to you for hours on end. And we didn't even really touch on um, so much stuff with regards to your career. But genuinely, a huge, huge thank you for your time. And please continue to keep on riding and keep inspiring us. And uh, maybe one day Jill will join us on the show as well and bring us through some of the insight and the, the work that she's done in terms of supporting you. I hope she has a nice meal prepared for you for tonight now after that big spin yesterday and today. Yeah, she always does. So thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Like, and uh, and again, it's another opportunity for me to just say thank you to all of the listeners who follow us and who support us. Because believe it or not, following the dot and 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 being on social media is a huge help for us running the team. Like, so please keep on keeping on. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. Try with an I, not a Y. Connect with me on social media across Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Pop by and say hi and let me know what you think of the show. If you are new to Try Talking Sport, please do check out some of our previous episodes. You will be impressed and inspired by our guests. Until next time, wash your hands, stay safe and thanks for tuning in.